0: Hey there, M-Critters. Scott Weingart here, and this is the M-Crit Podcast. Today, we are going to do an update on push-dose pressers. I last really discussed this on episode six. That has to be like, I don't know, seven or eight years ago. And uh, I think it's time to do a little uh, housekeeping, a little update. Now, what is the timing for this why am i doing this now well in press in annals of emergency medicine um, are a couple of papers well one paper and one editorial on push those pressers and you're going to be seeing those and i wanted to head off some of the commentary that i'm sure will result from these papers they're is additionally a letter to the editor in press at the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. And all of these, of course, are linked in the show notes at mcrit.org/205. Um, but so that is the context for this. Now, let's set the stage with a case. This is, of course, an imaginary case, but maybe based on uh, real cases that happened at the Janus General. But you get a 50-year-old woman come in. She said her blood pressure has been running high over the past few days, and so today she's uh, taken a few extra of her hydralazine, not in a suicide attempt, simply because uh, she's been noticing these high blood pressures and wanted to get control. Now, if you've listened to the podcast for any length of time, you know hydralazine is a uh, difficult-to-predict-its-effects medication. It is inconsistent, especially in its IV form, but seemingly in its oral form as well. And when this patient arrived, she was doing okay. She was speaking to us, but her blood pressure was reading 50 over 30. Now... This is not a patient who's fluid down. This is not a patient who needs blood. Uh, This is a patient with pure vasodilatory shock. Uh, You know what this patient needs. This patient needs to be put on a vasopressor. And since at our institution we could start peripheral vasopressors, uh, it should be like that at all institutions, uh, we immediately called for a norepinephrine drip. And so the nurses go to the med room to get that. Now, while that's occurring... The patient's next blood pressure is 40 over 20. And now the patient is unconscious. Uh, Folks are grabbing the pads for the defibrillator. Other folks are trying to find a pulse. But if you're a resuscitationist, you know what must happen now. All of that is secondary. This patient needs the immediate provision of a vasopressor. The folks going to get the norepi drip can't be made to move any quicker than they already are. They already knew the severity of the situation and are moving as fast as they can. What do you do? Well, it's obvious what you do, but we'll get back to this case at the end of this podcast. So push-dose pressers, the idea of being able to have available for immediate administration oppressors at known and proper doses to allow the temporizing of situations until you could get a real vasopressor drip, or you could give the patient adequate load of fluid or blood while you could figure out what's going on with them. Now, some have commented that uh, you never need push those pressors. You should just immediately start vasopressor drips. And this is a obvious understanding of the logistics of an emergency department, and especially an ICU. Uh, It just doesn't happen this way. Let's pretend you're in an emergency department that stocks these medications pre-mixed in a medication administration device, a machine. Uh, That's really your best circumstance. I would argue that there is a number of minutes in which a resus-ready ED should be able to get a vasopressor drip up. Uh, I'm going to say it's eight minutes. I don't know where that number came from, but it has just as much validity as all of the other regulatory crap we're held to when hospital evaluators come. And one day when I retire from clinical medicine and become a evaluation service for the resus readiness of EDs and ICUs, uh, which may or may not be on the realistic future job spectrum, uh, I will go and make up numbers just like all the other regulatory bodies do. And eight minutes seems like a reasonable number. What I wanted to say is five minutes. That seems much more uh, ewing to uh, what I think is actually right. But just, you know, due to the exigencies of some EDs and ICUs, I'll let, we'll say it's eight. We'll give a little padding there. If it takes you longer than eight minutes to get a drip, you have major problems and you're not actually, in my mind, a ready. ED. Uh, So with that made-up number of eight minutes, can a patient wait? And some can, and some cannot. Obviously, the patient in the case we just mentioned can't wait eight minutes. They can't wait eight seconds for the drip to be made. Now, in ICUs, a lot of the time, they don't even have any availability of these medications on the floor on the unit. They have to call down to the pharmacy and get them sent up. And uh, in Janus general, a stat call to the pharmacy, a stat order will get you your medications within 45 minutes. Now, many times it's quicker than that, but it's almost always greater than 15 minutes. That's not acceptable for some patients. So all the people that look at push-dose pressures and say, I don't understand why you need this. These patients will do fine with their hypotension are not talking about the same patients I am. I totally agree with them. Patients MAP slips post-intubation down to 60. Yeah, you could probably wait them out. Maybe they need some fluids. Maybe they don't. That's not who I'm talking about. I'm talking about patients at the critical limit of blood pressure. And so maybe we shouldn't say push those pressors are for hypotension. Maybe that's inspiring the wrong vision in people's head. Maybe we should say push those pressors are for patients who are critically low on perfusion. It's to correct critically low perfusion. Let's just say that. Push those pressors are to correct critically low perfusion to the brain and the heart. That's what push-dose pressors are for. They're not for hypotension anymore. They're for critically low perfusion. And if you say that, then it makes a lot more sense. And if these patients uh, are not critically low on their perfusion, then do whatever the hell you want. I might still give them push-dose pressors. But that doesn't make the use case for them. Critically low perfusion does. And when you have a patient with critically low perfusion, they can't wait five minutes, eight minutes, three minutes. They need to be temporized now. Not to mention, once you get that drip to the bedside, depending on your drip rates with these concentrated drips, these drips that are just a few cc's uh, per hour sometimes, uh, depending on the dead space of the line, even after you get that infusion to the bedside, the patient's bloodstream may not see a drop of that uh, vasopressor for quite some time. And if you're not aware of that, then you are also going to potentially kill a patient. And you might want to just give them a little push dose of whatever infusion you've brought to the bedside by drawing it out of the bag and actually injecting it until you see it move from the port you've put the uh, IV drip into until it's actually touching their bloodstream. And I do that quite commonly when a drip is actually available but hasn't been started yet because otherwise I still have to wait minutes until the patient sees the results of their vasopressor drip. Okay, so this is who push dose pressors are for. They're for patients with critically low perfusion to their brain and heart, and they can't wait the five to eight minutes for a vasopressor drip. And I'll say, uh, there is nowhere better than Janice General at this. We have an EDICU. We have nurses that are incredible. And even then, a lot of times it takes four to five minutes from the time you ask for it till the time a drip touches a patient's bloodstream, and some patients won't wait. Okay, so enough introductory crap. Uh, Let's discuss the first article that's in press in the annals. And this is called Safety Considerations and Guideline-Based Safe Use Recommendations for, in quotes, bolus dose vasopressors in the emergency department. The lead author is Devin Holden. These authors are primarily PharmDs. There's one MD on the paper, um, but they're primarily PharmDs. Is this a good paper? Yes, this is an extremely good paper. Everyone should read this. You should adopt most of the recommendations. Now, there is a slightly negative bias uh, in this paper against uh, Doc's capability to draw up, mix, use medications. It may be a true bias, it, but the paper does read that way. There's a uh, very slight, not like, you know, gonna bother you that much, pro-Farm D bias. I'll talk about my vision of Farm Ds in the emergency department towards the end of this podcast, uh, but there definitely is a pro-Farm D bias. That bias, I think, is also understandable and may be true. So, with those provisos, uh, read this paper. Now, I'm not going to go through the entire paper. I've linked to it in the show notes. You should just read it because if I go through it, you might decide not to read it, and you should because what it does is establish a very good operational framework for making a guideline for your ED or ICU for the use of push-dose pressors. And While there is some like negative cast towards their feelings about it, they're like, I think accepting that this is here to stay and therefore give you all the ways to make this happen safely and you should just adopt almost whole cloth the things they recommend. Now, just a few points about the article. They mentioned in a few different places a prohibition against pre-filled saline syringes being used to mix up your push-dose epi. Now, they didn't say exactly why. I can intuit why. And uh, this points to another potential problem uh, with the use of push dose epi that I have not pointed out in the original podcast, podcast number six. So let me mention it here. You should never, if you're using push-dose epi, after you've used 10 cc's, and if you're using all 10 cc's of push-dose epi, uh, then you gotta wonder if you're doing something wrong because you shouldn't be going that far in push-dose epi. But let's say you did, and then you decide you're gonna mix up more, and you have a syringe already labeled, and you say to yourself, "Who? I'm just gonna redraw up another nine cc's of saline and another cc of that same cardiac epinephrine, and I'll have another 10 cc's of push-dose epi. Don't do this. Uh, why? Okay, you have to imagine a syringe in your head. Imagine a syringe. Now, the syringe is coming out of the package sterile. And now you pull back on that plunger to draw up nine cc's of saline. And then you pull back one more cc to pull up that epinephrine. And then you shake, 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 shake. And now you have your push dose epinephrine. Well, the actual plunger of that syringe is no longer sterile. You understand why? You've pulled it all the way out, right? It's now touched air. It's touched your hands. It might be put down on a desk. uh, With those 10 cc's in it, the plunger is touching everything. Then each time you inject using that plunger, uh, you're moving that dirty plunger into the barrel of the syringe, but it's okay because it's not touching any of the delightfully sterile medication. But if you now decide you're gonna redraw into that syringe to make up another push dose epi, you've already contaminated the inside of that syringe. And now that new batch is no longer sterile, which is why you should never do that. It's a one-time use for any syringe. You could pull back once and then you could push once and then that's it, you throw it away and you start again. I imagine That is the same prohibition they are mentioning for pre-filled saline syringes. Now, in this case, you would only be contaminating one cc of the barrel. And not to mention the fact that every time you see nurses, and I don't know, maybe PharmDs as well, uh, I'm not sure about this one, but every time you see them drawing medications from a vial, they're always pulling some air into the syringe, injecting that air into the vial, and then pulling back to get the drug, which is contaminating the syringe. We see this all the time, but it's why I've always uh, been pretty careful to say, don't use the pre-filled syringes, draw nine cc's of saline into a fresh, clean syringe, and then draw up the one cc of cardiac epinephrine. Um, I've done that because I don't want to be condemned by the PharmDs, Uh, which is not to say that uh, I have not witnessed people using the pre-filled saline syringes, and it's probably okay, but don't do it. At least don't do it if we're going to publicly declare how to do this. So that's one uh, just point made in the article is they didn't really explain it, and they didn't prohibit redrawing into the pre-labeled syringe after you've used an entire syringe. So I'm making that point here. The other thing I, uh, the only other thing really I disagreed with on the article is they have these very nice um, policy boxes for both phenylephrine and epinephrine, but the phenylephrine is at a non-standard concentration. Uh, They are actually mixing the phenylephrine in this box up at 40 micrograms per ml. I mean, which is fine as far as it goes, but to my understanding, in the anesthesia world, which is where all of this came from, uh, phenylephrine standard mix is 100 micrograms per ml. That is, as far as I know, now it might be, that I'm wrong, and at this particular institution, their anesthesiologists are using 40 micrograms per ml, in which case this makes a lot of sense. But uh, it just seems every anesthesiologist I've spoken to, it's always in these phenylephrine or neosticks, as they're called, 100 micrograms per ml. And if that is true of the case at their institution and they're mixing up a 40 microgram, uh, that's problematic. But even if that's the case, um, then putting it in the literature uh, for other folks to adopt at this 40 microgram per ml uh, may cause problems. So what I advocate everyone do is speak to their own anesthesia department. Because in an ideal world, uh, anyone coming down from an, another department in your institution saying, oh my gosh, this patient's profoundly hypotensive after I just intubated him, get me a neo stick uh, should expect the same exact concentration, whether in the OR, the ICU, or the ED. So uh, what I would recommend is before you adopt these boxes, and you'll see what I'm talking about if you go to the article, make sure the institutional dose at your place is... 40 micrograms per mL, or just you adjust everything in there to get the standard mix of 100 micrograms per mL of phenylephrine. Aside from that, uh, I'd say this article should be used at every ED using push-dose pressers. Okay, now I imagine published in that same uh, journal month of the Annals of Emergency Medicine, when that article comes out, will be an editorial uh, by John Cole. Uh, Now, Also in this editorial, nothing incorrect was said, but there is definitely a tone of anti-push dose pressers in this editorial. And it's fine. Um, Again, there's an acknowledgement that this probably is going to be used. Why is it probably going to be used? Because anyone who's a resuscitationist who has thought through the problem highlighted in the case at the top of this episode, which is a patient going to die or at least go unconscious, maybe go into cardiac arrest— uh, while waiting for a vasopressor drip needs something, wh- wh- regardless of what that something is to temporize the situation. And uh, one of the answers is push those pressers. We'll talk about some of the other answers later on. Um, there is this real uh, stressing in both of these, the editorial and the article, that there's no literature for this except for like two retrospective trials. Yeah. Plus, you know, the enormous body of literature in the anesthesia world. But yeah, I understand diff- different specialties and and uh, Dr. Cole actually highlights this, uh, the same way we had Propofol adopted into emergency medicine, neuromuscular blockers was taken from another specialty. Uh, but it- either you accept docs are capable of doing this and then the docs should get just as good as the anesthesiologist or you're not. And I think we have to acknowledge docs are capable of doing this. It's been done for decades in anesthesia. It's probably been done for almost a decade now in emergency medicine. Uh, Either except docs are capable or not. Uh, There's no magic that makes an anesthesiologist more capable, except that they do it all the time, which is what I think any ED using push dose pressures should do. And then you don't have these problems. Um, Now, uh, you'll read the editorial. See, I think what you mean about the tone. And uh, what's interesting is uh, I actually want to have John Cole on the podcast to discuss his use of IV olanzapine, which in so many ways is analogous to the use of push dose pressers off label uh, potential for errors if you're not familiar with it. Uh, but we'll, we'll, we'll rib him about that when he comes on. But as mentioned, it's, a, it, the edi- there's nothing wrong with this editorial in terms of factual stuff, and it's good. It lists a lot of references, so read it. You'll enjoy it. Uh, what other literature? There's a letter to the editor in, uh, press and AGM about some medication errors. we push pushed those pressers. Uh, both this letter and the, uh, the safety and guideline annals article uh, seem to stress that push those pressures may uh, keep you away from the proper care of uh, fluid bolus. Uh, I got to disagree with that contention in many cases. Uh, First of all, fluid boluses are not quick. They take on average to get a leader in somewhere around eight to 10 minutes uh, in most circumstances. And, they're usually not appropriate for patients who've become vasodilatory. Uh, you know what's appropriate for those patients? Uh, vasopressors or inopressors. That's what's appropriate. So uh, any part you read in that letter or otherwise saying, "Oh well, this is a screw up because they should have given the patient fluids," uh, I read that with a grain of salt. Um, but there, there were definitely some medication errors highlighted. They're all due to lack of familiarity with. The use of push dose pressors. There's nothing intrinsic to push dose themselves. It's just people who shouldn't be using them. So who should be using push dose pressors? Because if you can't handle this, you probably can't handle a lot of resuscitative medicine. Um, which is not to say errors won't happen. They actually will. It's just that maybe you're not the best places to use push dose pressors. Maybe you're not the best docs to use push dose pressors. And what this comes down to is the difference between a resus. ED and a non-resus ED, the difference between a resus doctor and a non-resus doctor. And I'm not going to dwell on that. It pisses people off every time I talk about it. We all want to pretend that every emergency physician, every ICU doc, they are interchangeable in their skills of dealing with the stress and requirements of an acutely crashing patient. But, and yet we all know in our hearts it's not true. If you are not doing resuscitation on a regular basis, you probably shouldn't be using push-dose pressors. This is a skill like any other. If you can't place a transvenous pacemaker yourself, you probably shouldn't be using push-dose pressors. I'm just going to leave it there. I could go on the soapbox, but I, everyone gets pissed off. Um, but Yeah, I think that's a pretty good analogy. If you are capable of placing a transvenous pacemaker on your own, by which I mean not just getting in the cordis and blindly hoping that the pacemaker you're jamming into the vessel gets there, but actually know how to work a pacemaker box, know how to set everything up, know how to do it and then not realize at the end of the procedure you forgot to put the sheath on, then you probably have the skill set to use push-dose pressers, and you just need someone to teach you the right way to do it, and you'll probably be able to get it done. If you're not, then don't. Okay, so you could read that letter to the editor as well. They highlight some errors at their institution, and I applaud these folks for uh, having the bravery to report it. Again, there is a bias there from the paper. You could read it, decide for yourself, but it's written by farm D's, and as a result, there's certainly a pro farm D response. As I'll get to you at the end of this podcast. Uh, again, that's not necessarily a bad thing, and I'll tell you my reasons why. Okay, let's. Discuss some updates from that original podcast. Uh, question one Why has Epi won my heart? Uh, at the time I had done the original Push Dose Presser podcast, I had said that fennel was my fave. Why was fennel my favorite at that point? Uh, because I had just worked, I had spent a year with the best anesthesiologists I've ever encountered. They almost exclusively use phenylephrine, that's what I was taught. Over the course of those seven or eight years since that podcast, I have come to love Epi almost exclusively. If I had to get rid of one, I would certainly get rid of the phenylephrine. Um, At the time I was doing that podcast, we had to mix our own phenylephrine since then at both my old and new institution. Uh, we have pre-mixed fennel. So that's not as much an issue, but that was one of the reasons for a few years there I had to mix all my own fennels. I saw residents like keeping bags of phenylephrine around uh, after they had mixed them to use on, you know, the patient for, you know, I'll just keep this bag around at any time I need it. Uh, that that's not allowed. In fact, one of the things from that safety and guidelines paper is you get an hour on these max. I would say if you've uh, passed the point where you thought you needed it, the peri-intubation's over, the patient's fine, or you use some push-dose epi on a patient, and then uh, they got on a epi drip, throw it away at that moment. Don't even keep it the hour, but certainly don't keep these bags hanging around for a whole shift. Um, but uh, that was one reason that I started moving towards epi is I did not like the complexity of mixing up fennel. That's no longer an issue. Why do I use epi almost exclusively now? It's because uh, it has the inotropy and the vasopressor response. Almost all these patients benefit from that. Maybe the only case where phenol still has a role is the uh, AFib patient with rapid ventricular response who's a borderline hypotensive or actively hypotensive. You want to temporize them. Uh, even then, my belief is and my experience is that epi doesn't make their tachycardia any worse. They already have a ton of beta going on and the epi doesn't make it worse but if i was going to say what is the use case for phenylephrine the only use case is rapid tachycardias where you need hypotensive support for everything else it's epi what other updates well during that original podcast i i spoke a bunch about uh using push dose epi in situations uh where you think the hypotension is going to be short-lived uh It doesn't really happen anymore. You see, that podcast was done at a time when we thought it was a good idea to load a patient with eight liters of fluid. And what you'll find out when you load a patient with eight liters of fluid is that, yes, they will have a blood pressure response a lot of the time. Uh, Most of the patients in the ED retain at their early stages some degree of fluid responsiveness. Um, But then what you'll discover is that, you know, an hour later, they go up to the norepi drip, and now they have the eight liters hanging around that probably weren't necessary in the first place. That all of those patients who you thought you were temporizing with push-dose epi in time to pressure bag in three or four liters of fluid— most of them wound up on the vasopressor drip anyway, and they probably did not benefit from those three to four liters of fluid. As a result, my vision of push-dose pressors has changed from temporizing while allowing fluid loading to temporizing the three to four minutes until you could get a vasopressor drip on. So now, almost exclusively, when I'm using push-dose epinephrine, these patients are winding up on a drip, and this short-term use has just disappeared as I realized the error of my ways in terms of large-volume fluid loads actually fixing the situation, because they fix it temporarily and not long-term. So now, almost always, you know, post-intubation, hypotension, they've dropped their MAP to 40, I've given them push-dose epi, uh, we're just going to start the epi drip. We might at some point give them a little bit more fluid. Uh, depending on the results of our heart, IVC, lung ultrasound. But uh, usually these patients, when given push-dose epi, wind up on epi. All right, so that's another update. A lot of the problems highlighted in all three of the uh, papers mentioned is in the mixing of these push-dose pressers. And since, like I say, I only use push-dose epi now, And since even if I wanted to use push-dose phenylephrine, we have pre-mixed phenylephrine, I'm just going to concentrate on the mixing of push-dose epi. Uh, I had videos, I had uh, descriptions, I had signs that should be printed on your med room and in your recess rooms, and uh, I I thought if you did those things, it's pretty workable, pretty easy not to screw up. But then, and this is like one of the slap your head with your hand moments, uh, and it had to be, I think, two or three years ago. Uh, A guy named Danny, a paramedic who goes by the name, uh, the misnomer, Dr. Goodleg, made a suggestion that was so brilliant and so obvious that it just like pained me that I didn't see it myself. But uh, what he suggested is, why don't you put the mixing instructions on the label? Oh, duh. Duh. How come I didn't think about that? And that's what we did ever since. And now, uh, if you go to the show notes, mcrit.org slash 205, you'll see uh, one of the labels we use. It says push-dose epinephrine, 10 micrograms per ml. And then in a little box, it says mix 1 ml of cardiac arrest epi, 100 micrograms per ml, in 9 ml's of normal saline and shake well. The mixing instructions are on the label. So when you're going to mix up push-dose epinephrine, you get the sheet of labels. You look at the mixing instructions, you mix it, and then you put the label on the syringe. And this, I think, takes away all of the mixing errors out there if you do it this way. Okay, let's go back to our case at the top. Let's say you had not mixed up push-dose epinephrine on that patient who took a few extra hydralazine and now has gone unconscious from hypotension. Well, you could take the, you know, 30 seconds to a minute to mix up push dose. But uh, if you haven't done it beforehand, it's probably not a good time to even wait those 30 seconds. What you want to do is you want to open your code card. There should be a code card immediately available to any resus room. You want to take out your cardiac arrest epinephrine. And then you want to push 0.5 mLs of the cardiac arrest epinephrine. Why 0.5 mLs? Because it is the smallest marked dose that could be given out of that syringe. It's, uh, and if you get it wrong, it's 0.4, it's 0.6, it's probably okay. But if you hover right around that line, and they're usually marked in half ML increments on every cardiac arrest syringe I've seen, uh, you'll be given about 0.5 mLs, that's 50 micrograms. Now, in a patient who's just you know hypotensive but not unconscious about the code, that's probably too much, and they will get sometimes profound hypertension as a result of that, but probably not life-threatening hypertension, probably not brain-threatening hypertension, because uh, it's, it's you know, a little bit more than double the max dose you actually want to give. It's much better to give the push dose dilution and actually give 5 to 20 micrograms of the epi, but this has saved my ass on numerous occasions. I've mentioned it on the podcast a number of times. They never give the milligram of epinephrine to this kind of patient. Uh, give the 0.5 mLs of epinephrine Instead, John Cole mentions in his editorial, he mentions it as a substitute for push-dose pressers. It is not a substitute for push-dose pressers. It is a substitute for push-dose pressers when your patient is about to code or actively in the coding situation. And I've done it. I will continue to do it when I have not already mixed up push epi. But in these circumstances, a the patient about to code who... You've already mixed up push-dose epi. It makes a lot more sense to give two cc's of the push-dose epi. Okay, let's talk about the dirty epi drip. Now, as far as I know, this was either invented by or at least highly promulgated by my frenemy, Ruben Strayer. Uh, The first mention of this I saw was on his blog in 2009. Let me explain what the dirty epi drip is. You take a liter bag of saline, and then you take either available form of epinephrine, either the 1 to 1,000 mix, which is 1 cc is 1 milligram, or the 1 to 10,000 mix. And these 1 to 1,000, 1 to 10,000 are disappearing, thankfully, um, but I think they're still the vernacular now you know, the 1 to 10,000 being the 10 cc's for 1 milligram. It doesn't really matter which of these you grab, which isn't a nice advantage of the dirty epi drip, because if you just say, get me some epi, uh, they'll give you one of these two things, and then you'll be able to make the dirty epi drip. And then you inject all of that epi, either the 1 milligram in 1 cc or the 1 milligram in 10, into the bag of saline, and then you shake. And if you don't shake, you will be committing... Uh, potential for huge medication errors, and this is not mentioned in a lot of the dirty epi drip stuff I've seen on the internet. So please, please shake the hell out of this bag, just like you shake the hell out of the syringe of push dose epi or push dose fentanyl you've made. And then, uh, and this is their ex, uh, you drip it in. Now, when you hear Ruben talk about this, he'll give you like all these uh, drip to. Uh, ML to dose recommendations, um, and I think he's just doing that as uh, persiflage. What Ruben actually, when you get him offline, will tell you is j- just drip it in and increase the drip if the patient's blood pressure is too low, decrease the drip if the patient's blood pressure is too high, which as it goes is also probably fine because uh, this is one microgram per ML, and for the most part, You'll get away with it. Now, I have a few problems with this, and I've mentioned it in the past. We had the smack debate that uh, none of the points came out because the smack debate turned out to be about something very different. Uh, but what are the problems with this? Well, first of all, you have no idea the dose you're actually giving, which makes you look sloppy, which makes it impossible to order in the chart what actually happened to this patient, which makes us just look like a specialty that is half-ass in it. Uh, that's the least of my problems with this. I was trained on the ambulance before we had drip pumps to administer things like dopamine by the uh, drip method. It is completely inaccurate. It's a joke. And we were doing it with the 60 drops to ML sets where you could actually easily see and have like a much bigger margin of error for these uh, drip calculations done by looking at the number of drips per second. Uh, Those don't exist in any ED I've worked in. Uh, we, because everything is done as either administering a bolus or else put on a pump, there's no reason they stock these uh, 60 drips to ml drip sets. They always have either 15 to 20 uh, drops per ml. And as a result, uh, it's very difficult to get precise dosage adjustments, uh, which is why you shouldn't do it. But the real problem I have with this concept is, you know, if you set this drip up, Uh, with the patient's arm in one position and, you know, count it out. Oh, uh, I'm doing two drops a second. I feel pretty good about the dose here. And then the patient moves their arm. All of a sudden, the IV is running wide open and they're getting a very different rate of epinephrine. Now, I told you 50 micrograms is a lot of epi. A possibly deleterious dose of epi, profound hypertension dose of epi. It is super easy to get 50 micrograms of epi in through this dirty epi without even having anything untoward happen, Um, which is not even to go into the fact that uh, very rarely in these mixing instructions of the dirty epi drip is anyone labeling these bags in a clear fashion. And uh, it's not difficult to imagine, and I'm sure it's already happened somewhere, that someone decides, oh, this patient needs more fluid, I'm gonna squeeze that bag of saline, I'm gonna pressure bag that bag of saline, Uh, that has the epi in it, that would be bad, bad. The whole point of this dirty epi drip, and and this is actually espoused by all the people who recommend it, is you could drip it in and not have to worry about paying attention to it. This is ridiculous. Now, I think the reason this is recommended, and in fact Rubens actually said this outright, is a misunderstanding of push-dose epinephrine or push-dose pressers in general. See the dirty epi drip is in response to the same problem that push dose pressors are in response to. Is we, everyone who uses either has identified they need something in the five to eight minutes until the drip comes to the bedside. But when Ruben talks about this, he mentions push dose pressors lasting seconds. And I guess in his mind, what you're having to do is every like thirty seconds give another dose of push dose. Pressors. That's not how they work. They last minutes. Uh, Sometimes uh, they last, you know, up to 10 minutes. Now, I don't see that that often, but what I usually get is I get three to five minutes. And since I've told you every resource ready ED should be able to have a presser drip up with an eight, generally you're giving one to two doses of push dose epinephrine, Uh, not 30 or 40 as Ruben has kind of uh, indicated by his timing recommendations. Now, if I could really, you know, piece out some of the stuff Ruben said, it seems like in some situations they can't get the vasopressors to the bedside within the eight minutes. And they're just using the push-dose pressors for extended periods of time. This, in my mind, is not a good idea. Now, what you could do instead is, and what I did do at my old shop before Janet's General, is I just learned to use the drip pumps. And you should do this. And this is not hard. And if you wanted to mix up your dirty epi drip, and then put it into a pump, well, that would be fine. That would be great. You can't remember the hospital drips, uh, you know, the eight uh milligrams and 250 or the four milligrams and 250 of your standard hospital epi drip or you know the one milligram and 100 ccs whatever your hospital uses you can't remember oh I I, I just can't remember what should I do and you just said to yourself okay well I'll, I'll mix up this dirty epi drip it's gonna be one microgram per cc and I want 10 micrograms uh you know per minute and I know this pumps by hours so I'll give uh, 600 ccs an hour and you know how to use the pump it's really not that hard anesthesiologists are doing it all the time that would be a great use of dirty epi i got no problem with that now one should argue that if you can mix up uh, dirty epi you probably can mix up the hospitals designated epi but i'm not going to go there so you mix up the dirty epi drip you put it on a pump that's one way to solve the problem got no problem with that that's why pumps were invented the other way if you wanted to use the dirty epi drip in a good way, is if you said, oh, crap, I oh, crap, I can't remember how to mix up the push-dose epi, and you haven't made the labels I've asked you to, and you haven't made the signs and all that stuff, and you wanted to put a milligram in 1,000 cc's and now know, this is the nice part of a dirty epi drip, that it's one microgram per cc, and you just decided that you're just going to draw up from that dirty epi bag 10 mLs and give that over a minute, draw up 5 mLs, give that over a minute, draw up even 20 mls in a 20 cc syringe and give that over a minute and then wait see what your patient's doing and then if you wanted to draw up another 5 10 or 20 cc's in a new syringe please and give that then this would also be a great use of a dirty epi bag it's not a dirty epi drip anymore and then uh, this would be also a clever way to go let me give you another option if you just can't handle the mixing Uh, Many places, not in the United States that I know of, but uh, across the world, my friends in Iceland have mentioned this, and other places as well, they use push-dose norepi. Well, my ED and all the other EDs I've worked in have premixed norepinephrine in the ED. If you wanted to grab this and you've beforehand figured out what concentration your hospital has and you've confirmed it by looking at the bag again, but if you have uh, what was standard at our place, the 4 milligrams and 250 mLs, it says on the package 16 micrograms per mL. Well, you could draw up half to 1 mL of that, 8 to 16 micrograms in Norefi, and push that over a minute. Well, now you have a push dose dose. Uh, presser. you don't need to mix up again, just like the dirty epi drip without even the dirty epi mixing. So push dose norepi may be the solution. But all of this is in service of saying that you need, you need, you need a way to fix the situation between the time span of zero to however long it takes to get a vasopressor drip to the bedside. And you should have one way for your ED. We've gone with push dose epi and pre-made push-dose phenylephrine, that's our way. We have a departmental guideline for it. We have uh, ways of training our nurses on it. We have it on our intubation checklist. That's our way. If the dirty epi drip is your way, then it should be the way for your entire ED. If you want to do this push-dose epi thing I just told you about, that should be the way for your ED. Having multiple ways per provider is the way you get these medication errors. So I totally agree with the articles on that. If each provider is going to do this differently, then there's going to be medication errors. The nurses are not going to get one consistent way to train, one consistent way it's done. And it doesn't mean you just need one drug. Like I say, we have two, but our nurses are familiar with those two drugs. Our docs are familiar with those two drugs. Pick a way, make an institutional guideline. You could use all of the uh, pre-made ones from the Annals article, and then just... Agree to it amongst all your providers and use that as your temporizing measure. I don't think Dirty Epi should be your solution. Okay, ED Pharmacist, and then we'll stop because this has already run way longer than a normal uh, MCRID episode. I love ED PharmDs. We have an ED PharmD at our current shop. Uh, So helpful, so useful, such a valuable part of the team, but... At our place, and I think most places, they are not there 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. And if that is the situation in your shop, then I'm going to make a recommendation for all ED PharmDs. Don't do the work of making medications. If you're not there every moment of every day, don't mix the meds. A lot of these articles, if you read between the lines, they'd be saying docs shouldn't be mixing the meds. Maybe even nurses shouldn't be mixing these meds in critical situations. The PharmDs should be mixing the meds. That is the bias I alluded to earlier. And they're right in the sense that uh, there's probably less potential for medication error if that was the situation, until the PharmDs aren't there at night. They aren't there on Saturday or Sunday. And now all of a sudden, you've increased the potential for medication error. You've made it more likely there will be medication errors. The presence of farm Ds, I think, increase medication errors if they are the ones doing the work when they're there. So what should the farm Ds do instead? Because I can't be clearer. I think farm Ds should be in the emergency department, should be in the ICU definitively, but they're not there all the time. My take is the farm Ds, every time there's a critical, medication that needs to be mixed, whether it's TPA, whether it's K-Centra, whether it's push-dose pressers, they should be supervising the nurse or doctor in the creation of these medications, in the mixing of these medications. That would be their ultimate role. Because then instead of de-skilling the department, they're upskilling the department. Instead of stealing the experience while they're there... And then actually leading to nurses and docs less capable when they're not, they are actually increasing it. And since they're taking a teaching and supervisory role, they're going to be a force multiplier for that emergency department. They will uh, get rid of bad medication mixing uh, habits. They will actually inspire proper technique in the folks that are around them. This would be the ultimate use of Ds. So I'm going to make a plea. Every ED D listening to this or reading these articles, don't mix up the push dose pressers. Don't mix up the TPA. Don't mix up the K-Centra. Have one of the line clinicians do it under your supervision. Make sure they're doing it right. Make sure there's no medication errors, but make them do it. So that when 1 a.m. rolls around and the stroke comes in, they'll do it right. When 3 a.m. rolls around and the patient with a head bleed on coumadin comes in, they'll still have the skills to mix up the prothrombin complex concentrates. Okay, I'm sure there's going to be some comments on this episode. Please put them in the show notes at mcrit.org/205. Oops, almost forgot, case resolution. Patient took a few too many hydralazine, dropped her blood pressure. When unconscious, folks grabbing the pads, folks asking, should we start CPR? Uh, we gave 20 micrograms of push-dose pressers, and the patient immediately regained consciousness, immediately had a decent blood pressure. That one dose temporized the patient until the norepinephrine came to the bedside. Scott Weingart for the MCRIP podcast saying bye-bye.